Hi and welcome to the podcast You're Having Tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Damien Smith, who is an, a sort of a history buff and comedian and autism advocate and old friend of mine. And we talked about high art and low art. We talked about history's lessons. We talked about the arc of a show and rhetoric, uh, misanthropy and, and controlling an audience. I thought it was a really lovely conversation. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it. Uh, I am currently, as you're listening to this, um, prepping to go on six weeks of maternity leave. I should still be putting out tea with Alice's, but probably slightly more irregularly, uh, depending on the load of, of babiness. Um, but I just want to thank everyone who has supported me and, and uh, particularly the Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash Alice Fraser is the place to go for that where we have our weekly Tea with Alice salons and that support is invaluable. Um, and by invaluable, I mean, I just can't express how much, how much it does for me both, um, both in terms of security and stability and also in terms of like emotional support. <laughs> like it's just so nice to know that there are people who enjoy what I do enough to support it. Uh, and if, of course, if you do not want to support me financially or can't, there are plenty of other ways that you can support sharing the work that I do, any, any kind of sharing, telling people who you think might like it, tweeting things, giving five-star reviews on platforms that you happen to subscribe to, and just generally listening and downloading and, and supporting my work because people pay attention to those numbers, um, even though perhaps they should not when it comes to commissioning things further down the line and so on and so forth. That said, I will stop rambling and let you get on with listening to this chat with Damien Smith. You're having tea with Alice. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Who are you and what are you drinking? Ah, two of the biggest questions I ever I ever have to deal with. I'm Damien Smith, uh, comedian, author, raconteur, man not about <laughs> town, man very much not about town, man very in his own little hermitage. And I am drinking some of uh, Ceylon's finest here, the Dilma. Oh, very nice. What do you As like I, about I take it? a dramatic sip there. That's very good. I like the folly artistry on the fly. Very well, I'm all about that folly. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to live your truth, don't you? <laughs> you do. Well, why do you like Dilma? <laughs> well, uh, how much time do you have on this one? It's quite the story, actually. I do have a story about this. Tell this me the not... story. This is exactly this. That's what this podcast is for. Tell, tell this me. This is going to feel like some sort of uh, shaky conceit that I've done here to to do this, but no, it's just occurred to me. I'll just go back many, many, many years. Um, my parents drink exclusively Dilma. That's all they drink. They love their tea, but only Dilma. No other brands whatsoever. Nothing else exists. And when my grandfather had cancer, he was also a big Dilma drinker. Got a dodgy batch of Dilma one day. Uh -huh. The bags were broken. And you, know, you put dip the little tea bag in, it goes everywhere. So my mother sent off a, an angry Karen email, essentially, to Dilma. And for some reason, it went to Malik Fernando, who is the ma in Dilma. Uh -huh. The co-owner of the company he got this email, sends an apologetic email back. Uh, but we're very sorry about this, Mrs. Smith. Uh, allow us to send a, a package as recompense. And this lovely little tea set comes along from Colombo about six weeks later. <laughs> Mum starts up a pen pal friendship with Malik of Dilma. <laughs> and it just culminated with, uh, do you want to come to Colombo one day and tour the, 
the Dilmar facility, sure, why not? And uh, a couple of years ago, tour of Dilmar with uh, with Dylan and Malik. That is incredible. That is an incredible you know, story. I have this brand loyalty that I need to. Uh, I'm not being paid by the Dilmar people, by the way. Uh, no, although if we can arrange that, yeah, yeah, come on, hashtag. I've always maintained that I will maintain the uh, the moral high ground of not selling out right up until someone hits my price tag. Well, so I don't do ads on Tea with Alice. Um, it's funded by the Patreon subscribers. But if I were to do ads, the only ads that I would do would probably be for tea. So if you've got a small well, tea, tea company. So um, turnabout's fair play. I tend to go for a Japanese green tea. That's what I like. That's my that's my jam, you know. I'm, but I'm not, I, I think of myself more of, more as a tea fan than a tea snob. You know, I will just drink a horrible hotel bag tea if I have to. Oh, yeah, don't let's dispel those illusions right now. Of course, I'll drink the horrible bag tea if I if I have to, but uh, let's not slum it if we don't have to. If know? we don't have to, if we have the option to have something that's sort of got delicious grassy depths, then then why wouldn't we? Uh, but, yes, I do. I also like a Ceylon. I, I, I enjoy it. The only tea that I really cannot wrap my head around is like a Russian caravan, those kind of really smoky ones that... Taste a little bit like a Russian I'm caravan. Familiar, I'm not familiar with a Russian caravan. Is that <laughs> you know the smell is that of as horrifying horses? as it sounds? Yes, it is exactly. It's, 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 I can I like I understand like smoky and complex and everything, but it just tastes like licking the bottom of a of a horse area to me. Wow, that, and it's what it's called a Russian caravan. Russian caravan tea. It's I can just, just imagine taking a sip of that and then. Privyet, comrades, we must attack the capitalist decadent West. <laughs> yeah. It yeah. tastes like tastes like shame for not defending motherland. It tastes like hey, I just can't I, I have to I th- I think I'll have to find a really high quality one and give it a, a good shot because it's just the one that I yeah, not for me, not to my taste. Um now I'm intrigued. I... Yeah, order some online. Why not? What else have we got to do in lockdown? Absolutely, a, a try a terrifying Russian teas. Why not? That's uh, it could be Russian tea roulette. <laughs> there you go. You can have that one for free. Yeah, I really want to do live salons, and people have asked me to do them before, um, like Tea with Alice salons. But I, the way, the only way I want to do them is like not just me doing an interview with someone on stage with an audience watching. I would do like a proper, you know, you pay sixty dollars, you have a full afternoon tea. You know, like it's a, a proper thing. I wouldn't I wouldn't want to do it as a as a show because then it's just an interview. And, and and the point of these conversations is that they're, you know, they're one-to-one and they're personal and they're not they're not just an interview, you know? It is. There's a certain uh, intimacy to this that's that, that's quite lovely. But I think you've illustrated the difference between our respective career paths here. Because, you know, we started at roughly the same time and you've gone on to great success and I've become a bitter husk of a human but uh i can't handle the idea of having that sort of um, that sort of democratization of audience that you come to my show and you will damn well listen to what i've got to say and there may be a q a at the end but this is not a dialogue this is a me-alogue well that, i mean yeah if i'm doing stand-up comedy yes but if i'm doing if i'm doing tea with alice it, ha- it would have to be more democratic I don't, I just, yeah, I just couldn't, 
there's plenty of people who are good interviewers as interviewers and I don't think that I, I'm a good interviewer. I think I'm a, a good conversationalist maybe. What's the difference in that? Is uh, what, what are we doing now? <sighs> Again, I feel like interviewer, there's a power dynamic there. They're trying to unpack something or unpick something or make you reveal something um, sort of it's it's for me this you know why i ask people what they're wrestling with is because i want i want it to be a cooperative enterprise i want it to be a sort of a dialectic process where we both look at something or explore something or unpack something together so it's not it's not simultaneously i think with the interviewer interviewee relationship there's a the interviewer is in a power position because they're asking all the questions and then also the interviewee is in this power position where they're on the pedestal and they're inherently more interesting. And either way, you know, I, I think there's incredible people who are very, very good and have that skill of being both a good interviewer or a very good interviewee. And it's just not, it's not quite what I think I do, but maybe it is what I do. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm just drawing an increasingly narrow boundary around my work. To illustrate for the listeners here who can't uh, see this process, I, I am very strongly nodding and agreeing with what uh, Alice is saying here. And it's, uh, but it, it doesn't make for a good podcast. This sort of uh, <laughs> silent encouragement that I'm doing, <laughs> I, I am, I'm, I am, I agree, and I'm very impressed. Uh, well, speaking uh, of which, what have you I been wrestling with? Um, what have I been wrestling with? Uh, uh, life. It, life death the uh the inevitable heat death of the universe uh, <laughs> i'm norm mcdonald's moth joke uh, i've got so many problems where do you want to start <laughs> well start with what, what what what's been interesting you what you've been wrapping your head around maybe in a, a more positive way and then we can go into the uh, deep chasms of existential despair that wash over you what a remain thematic i find myself um constantly daily frustrated by the uh, the repeat of history mm-hmm. and you know as, as we all know the saying is those who do not study history are doomed to repeat it and those that do are doomed to watch others not study it and repeat it while we scream silently into the void stop what are you doing no we've been down this path before why aren't you listening to me fine go ahead do it see how it ends and people who watch the History Channel think that they've studied history and, in fact, have not and will say incredibly infuriating things to justify their righteous conspiracy theorists. I have a yeah, friend is... who has... Oh, come on. I have a friend who has uh, cerebral palsy and she has two live-in carers, both of whom are anti-vaxxers, uh, and one of whom said, um, does this remind you of 1930s Germany in any way? Uh, and my friend, uh, who happens to be Jewish as well, said, uh, no. And then uh, her carer said, well, they're going to start treating my people, meaning anti-vaxxers, like they treated your people. And that is someone who thinks they've studied history, but has not. (laughs) So that's the kind of thing I would say to deliberately poke the bear. And you you could see me there clamping down on my face, trying not to make... (laughs) dozens of inappropriate jokes and they're just laying that out there like that's that's their opener it's a it's a bold opening gambit i have to say it's it's a big move man it's a that's a big move you have to be and this is the thing people so confident in their positions and i think that's one of the things that studying history teaches you is maybe maybe that things are a little bit more complicated 
I mean, if one thing, and I'm a history enthusiast, and if there's one thing I've learned about the uh, the decadence of the Weimar Republic, it's that they were very staunch on their vaccines and having to show a sort of passport <laughs> to get into venues and go to raves and whatnot. And ultimately, that is what caused the, the rise of the Reich, isn't it? The uh, not being able to go out for a couple of tennies with the boys. <laughs> well, I mean... Uh- isn't it in even in isn't it in the Bible? It's Leviticus something like the lift like could be fifty six. Leviticus thirteen forty five, um, I think, but don't quote me. Which is which is about what you should do if you're a leper, which are basically wear a mask and like avoid other people. Yeah, socially distance. Uh, socially wear, distance. wear a covering over your lower face. Scream out, I am unclean. I am unclean. I can get behind that. Oh, can we make them scream, I am unclean? Please. I mean, otherwise they're screaming like pointless slogans as they march through the streets of Melbourne. I I never thought I'd be a dogmatic Catholic preacher, but here we are. Well, there's there's always some good in it. Uh, you you uh, you say you're a, a history fan um, or a history enthusiast is what you said. Uh, you have a podcast, don't you? I do, I do. Very. I'd say it's different to what uh, what you do, though, Alice, in that I yell at people and don't expect anything back. But uh, I do uh, <laughs> cast the pod, as it were. So is it a solo podcast or do you have It is. It's, it's, it's I mean, this. Podcast. so this is so impressive to me. That is so impressive to me. I find I, I will occasionally do solo episodes of this podcast, um, but I find, I yeah, I, t- talking to a wall is very confronting to me. It makes me feel unmoored. How so? Go, go on. Well, I'm a twin and I was brought up as a carer, so I have very little sense of self. I tend to frame myself by reference to the people around me um, or to whatever I'm reading at the time. It doesn't need to be human people. But, yeah, I, I can I, – if, I, if I'm talking solo out loud, it starts to feel like nonsense to me. It, it's that thing of repeating a word too often or the, the point of language is communication – and I can't envision the audience and it's all sort of like, I think I could do a solo podcast if there was someone sitting in the room with me quietly just nodding. <laughs> could you do it to a mirror perhaps? Uh, no, because I don't have enough self-respect. <laughs> See, are we all victims of our own upbringing though? Because I think this this illustrates my comfort with uh, podcasting and and performance in that uh, I prefer to do it solo. I prefer to shout into the void because I, I think that's a manifestation of the autistic aspect of me. Mm. Uh, I'm used to being alone. I prefer that that uh, that solo sort of vibe. And I, I guess it's a lifetime of practicing everything I say in my head before I say it so that the my mouth can catch up to the words in my brain and it just sort of naturally flows on from that. So yeah. I, whenever I speak, I've already rehearsed it, and I'm just okay. Let's so action. Here we go. And now I'm just flicking a, a button on a microphone and adding to that process. Well, so, so that is a super interesting thing to me. Do when you ask, okay, I mean, I've got like three questions that are immediately jumping out from this for me, um, uh, which is, what's your lighting state when you're on stage? What do you ask? the settings to be if you're doing a solo show in a venue over which you have control and it's a decent enough venue that you can choose how the lighting is what do you ask for because i always ask for there to be a little bit of light on the audience i go for none <laughs> i don't want to see them i don't want to know them even if they could t- preferably if they could not laugh that would be even better 
Um, <laughs> not a dialogue. <laughs> I, I know that I've written in my book, among other things, that comedy is a dialogue and it's, you know, it's a dialogue where only one person speaks, but I yeah, it's don't absolutely want to a dialogue. Speak. The way they laugh is informative and the way that it, it is all coming together is yeah. It's, I think it's that's, that's been my strength as a as a comedic performer, anyone, as a stand-up, is that the reaction of the audience doesn't matter to me. It never has. So I can plow through a show regardless. And there's a certain strength to that as a as a performer, well as a, as a stand up anyway, is that you can get through the lulls in a set if you just don't give a shit what the audience thinks, and and that's a very powerful thing as a performer because audiences can often sense fear and doubt. Often they always sense it. They're like sharks. A single thimble of doubt is enough to set them off from three miles away. But, I mean, you can, and I've seen you do this, you can uh, control a crowd and you can assess a crowd and you can tell how a crowd is, is feeling and give them what they want or, given your personality, occasionally resolutely refuse to give them what they want. Um, occasionally? Occasionally, uh, on the odd occasion. But, you know, this is, it's not that you, I mean, you can read a room. I've seen you do it. Yes, of course. And that's just, that's the that's the craft, isn't it? It's that's yes. what we do. It's but like you, you hit the nail on the head there. Just because I can doesn't mean that I will. Yeah. And I, I just put that down to to the craft. You learn it. You, if at some point you do have to maintain the momentum, don't you? Yes. You have to keep that ball rolling. But if there's a solid enough, if there's enough go forward in the crowd, then you can, you know, tease them and tickle them and prod them in places that they don't want to be prodded in and have great delight in that. Yes. Yeah, I think you and I, in an odd way, do something similar with crowd which is we push and pull, but I think you enjoy the pushing and I enjoy the pulling. <laughs> You've got a bit of push to you as well. I see. Yeah, no, I, li- I like, do like, I like to push, but I feel comfortable when I bring them back and I think maybe it's the opposite for you. I think there's a certain self-destruction in what I do as well, though where uh, I, I kind of fear a show going too well, so I'll, I'll actively sabotage that if I can. What will happen if a show goes too well? Let's try not to think that far ahead. It's <laughs> <laughs> a first time for everything. It'll be terrifying when it happens, but um, I don't know. Maybe there's a certain sab- self-sabotage to this. That I didn't expect a therapy session when I came in here. This is... Sorry. This is the closest I've had to any sort of mental help in, uh, in <laughs> over a decade. Well, I mean, I, I'm I've just been interested. solidly, solidly doubling down on my terrible habits over the past at least eighteen months, and now here you are ripping the. It's, it's like when you rip, open up a log or something, and all the horrible, creepy crawlies come tumbling out. That's what you're doing for my my career at the moment. Well, I mean, none of us have a career at the moment, except insofar as sort of this online expression of self goes. I mean, we don't have live performances, but you know, you, you think about a lot about comedy in the abstract, right? I do. Yeah. I, I, I love the craft of it. I love the, the science behind it. And it is a science. Let there be no doubt about that. Anyone that thinks it's got some sort of, higher meaning of uh, elaborating on the condition humane or whatever you want to 
say, no, it's just, it's stimulus and response. It's science. It's, you can replicate the results. And yeah, I like to think that I've deconstructed that to some extent. Yeah, I've been thinking about this. I did a podcast with my twin brother um, recently, a siblings podcast, and they asked us about the biggest fight we'd ever had. Um, and and because we haven't had very many big fights, the biggest sort of a Fraser fight looks a lot like both of us um, looking in slightly different directions with our gaze focused on the middle distance, uh, seeming sad that it's come to this. Uh, but it was about Savage, about the show that I did, which was about my mum which my brother does not like. He didn't approve of it uh, because a couple of reasons, one of which uh, is that, you know, I get to tell this version of our mother and he doesn't, that, you know, there's more people who know that version of her than know the reality. And because it is very a very thin version of her, obviously, it's a very narrow, you know, it's an artistic expression rather than an attempt to communicate the fullness of a human but the 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 real thing is that he thinks it's um grotesque to have these recordings of her next to jokes uh so for we had this conversation where he (laughs) is like that is you know i say well he doesn't respect what i do he doesn't like what i do he doesn't approve of what i do and he says no 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 i approve of what you do but this is this thing. I'm like, no, because you think it's inherently degrading. Like you think of comedy as a low art. Whereas for me, the point of the jokes is to draw people's attention to these, you know, structural things that I think they would otherwise not pay attention to. And it's, it's as functional and as high or low as poetry to me. But I don't think he'd be offended if I wrote a poem about our mum. And in fact, I know he's yes. not. And you're touching on something here that not a lot of people outside of our profession understand or appreciate. I submit to you that stand-up comedy is the highest of arts. Well, yeah. I mean, I I certainly think it's... I will outline it for the uh, for the listeners here, for the, any, any of the laymen out there that might be listening in that aren't uh, au fait with what we do. But you've got your high art forms, you've got your theatre, your poetry, your painting, whatever. It doesn't matter what it is. None of them can hold a candle to stand-up comedy because stand-up comedy is a live dialogue with an audience where the comic is simultaneously the writer, the director, the performer, the producer, the agent, the manager. You fill every single role at the same time. And not only are you performing that to a live audience in a dialogue, which we have established, it is a dialogue, it's a call and response, response is laughter, but there is the expectation, not just the desire, but the expectation to laugh. You have to produce that specific emotional response in a crowd every 45 seconds. Yes, otherwise they get angry as well. Otherwise they start throwing things. We've all done Newcastle gigs. (laughs) <laughs> that's the thing people can go in an art gallery and look at a thing on the wall and go oh, i don't get it and they walk on the reaction yes. that if, if somebody doesn't get comedy is extreme i know i know what i like and that's not comedy mate that's not comedy i know comedy that's not comedy nobody goes to a pub on the weekend to see the music well what kind of music do you like oh you know just music yeah i, I like the music <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, but what specific kind? No, no, just just the music, and then they'll go to a heavy metal concert and go, oh, no, no, music's country and western. What's this? This isn't music. Yeah. Yeah, I drum on my desk in in my 45 minutes of break time from my demeaning Kafka-esque nightmare. (laughs) I know what music is, and that's not music. That's what we deal with as comedians because everyone thinks they're funny. Everyone's made someone laugh. Yes, and everyone thinks, yeah, everyone sort of, so this is another thing, this is sort of slightly going into a sideline of a thing that I have been wrestling with, which is that we find it incredibly difficult to really internalise that other people have different frameworks. Like we can understand that intellectually, that that the the other person has a different uh, education and has been exposed to different information and has a different, you know, worldview because of that. But one of the things that you see online is people getting really angry about other people's ignorance. And to me, that says that they they think of the ignorance as culpable. They're, They're being ignorant on purpose because we can't really wrap our heads around the idea that they haven't seen the same information that we have. We think they must be ignoring that information or something. I see your point. I do see your point. But have we not reached a certain state in civilization where there is culpable ignorance? I mean, you can have the answers to any questions that you wish to ask. You can, you're can. you sitting in a device right now where you have the sum total of human knowledge available to you. What, re, what excuse is there for ignorance? Um, so my argument would be... You have like known knowns and, and unknown, like known unknowns and unknown unknowns. Okay, come at me, Rumsfeld. So you might not know that this is a question that's worth asking, or your education might have taught you that this is a question explicitly not worth asking. In which case, is your ignorance culpable or not? You know, and it, for me, then then that's about the emphasis of attention what we think is worth paying attention to. So, for example, when you see this online discourse about uh, race or, or sex or whatever it happens to be, so much of it is what people think is worth paying attention to. And for some people, it's not worth asking that question. There are other things in their lives that are more important or there are other things in their lives that they've been told are more important. So is their ignorance culpable or not just because they don't think this line of inquiry is worth their time? Well, I don't have an easy answer for you. I, I didn't expect us to get into epistemology so quickly. <laughs> but you expected us to get here eventually, right? Eventually, yeah, but I thought we'd do a little bit of foreplay first, oh, you know. We're right in, we're right in. That's what the T is for. That's T is the lubricant. <laughs> I always think of these as um, when I, in the early days when I was trying to explain what this was, Tea with Alice, I was like, it's fourth date conversation. You know, so like I'm not interested three, in your favourite colour. Like I'm interested in your theory of mind. <laughs> uh, to sort of uh, counter, I guess, um, it's another advantage of autism, but I will maintain my entire life that I do not suffer from this at all. My autism is a superpower. I am not one of those plebs that are bogged down with other people's feelings. And something I'm not a victim of is theory of mind. Mm. I have my theory of mind. You do you, boo, uh, but <laughs> I'm not going to be shaken on this. And 
I feel that there is there is a certain culpability to ignorance. And as you say, we're all we're all defined by our upbringing and nobody comes into this tubular rasa. We're all a collection of our experiences up until this point. And that does explain a certain a certain level of unwillingness to embrace new ideas and new concepts and whatnot. But willful ignorance, no, it's inexcusable. Yeah, I think I think there is a line and 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 there is yeah, it's a messy line. Again, I, I, when I say that that people uh, find it difficult to understand other people's where or other people are coming from, I'm not saying that that is necessarily evil or anything. I, I just, uh, yeah, I think it's a complicated situation, and I think it's got to do with priorities, and it's difficult to tell someone that their priorities ought to be different to what they are. Yeah, that's not something that you can induce in somebody. It's like Inception. They have to come up with them on their own. And all you can do is create the environment where they will, where they embrace that knowledge and the thirst for knowledge. And I think I've found a way to segue this back to <laughs> back to me. <laughs> Sweet. Watch the Doing gears clicking my mind. <laughs> that's what I try and do with my show. Interesting. Uh, I try, it's a breeding ground for embracing knowledge and for learning. In the insofar as I, I do an educational show, it's about history. It's educational in in a certain way, but it's very comedic. I, I am my own persona in this show, and it's not so different from a Damien Smith stand-up special. It's just a little less heavy on the jokes, and obviously you have to sacrifice fidelity to to have that and i make these broad sweeping statements like i can just categorically say that winston churchill was a dick and never have to back that up with evidence that's the glory <laughs> of not being a historian and you know you might have people go yeah i got hey winston churchill if you didn't have him then we wouldn't have won the war no you should have seen the other guy if you think winston churchill was a dick i can make those broad sweeping statements but in that like i said you lose the fidelity and then uh, i I will often be incorrect on certain matters because I am making a joke about it. Essentially, I've got to find that punchline. And I do get emails from people going, you were wrong about this or you were wrong about that or whatever, not realizing that I have seeded that in the show to promote people to go out there and try and prove me wrong. It's yeah, not like, a gotcha. Uh... Like, oh, you know, I, I studied this and this is where you were wrong. <laughs> How do you feel you've been bested? Like, no, no, you've you you're just triggered by trap card. So th this is also an interesting thing. Yeah, it's like a Clockwork Orange. He wanted people to read it with a Russian dictionary in hand. Uh, that's why he had so much Russian-inspired slang um, in it. But yeah, I think that's that. Well, so the way that, that Anthony people, Burgess was a lunatic, but I mean, yeah. yes, that too. But he did want he did want to inspire people to pick up a, a Russian dictionary, which I think is. Is lovely, and the other sort of side of that is the like to people telling you you're wrong or people doing corrections. It's very hard to do in the kind of positive way that would induce change in somebody, rather than defensiveness. 
Well, that's why it has to be the inception. You've got to come at it obliquely and let it be their idea. What I can't remember it offhand. I think it's which is why jokes are so good because they leave the last bit, the getting it bit, to the audience. So everyone who laughs at a joke in some subtle way thinks it's their own idea. Absolutely, and that's why I will try and avoid a punchline if I can. <laughs> I, I, I think the I think the measure of a well-crafted joke is where you don't have to deliver the punchline. Yeah. Yeah. The audience will do it themselves. And I strive for that. Don't often get there, but there are the, the glorious examples where it happens. But, you know, why, why can't we all dream of being Icarus? Yeah, the ellipsis at the end, I think, is just such a powerful tool. Um, and, you know, I, I, tr- I try to use that in structurally in a structural way as well in my shows of, of, I think I give the appearance of revealing a lot more than I do in my shows because what I do is I leave space for the audience to bring their own stuff in. Oh, can we talk structure on shows? That sounds yes. exciting. Absolutely. What 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 are your thoughts on structure? I mean, I, I know you have many, thought... but like <laughs> I have the patented, well, it's not actually patented, but still Damien Smith Festival Structure Mobius strip. <laughs> where uh, I have defined the hero's journey, as it were. But I'd like to hear how you structure a show because of of our many, many peers in this industry, uh, you are among the half dozen that I actually respect as somebody who can write a decent festival show. And I'd like to hear how you, how you approach that. Thank you. How you structure it, how you make it. Um, that's, that's very kind of you. I mean, it's sort of, it obviously varies slightly between shows. But I think the way that I write usually is quite recursive. Um, And I think of it very much as it's a bit like a detective novel um, or a a procedural drama where ideally... Start with a denouement. Yeah, so I I, I think about the moment of emotion or revelation or insight or epiphany that I had that I think is interesting. And then I I think, how do I put my audience into that moment? And what's the bare minimum? What are the, what are the clues that I have to drop back into the show? And then how can I conceal those clues so that the audience registers them, but doesn't register them as clues so that at the end, when that thing arrives, there's like, oh, that's, that was important that, you know, that dropped shoe was important and that that unloaded gun was important and that's where she loaded the gun and we didn't even notice like that is sort of how i try how i tend to think of it so that for that feeling at the end that i want to give to the audience i want that to feel to them like uh, very satisfying so that's how I, i tend to think of it and in order to do that i tend to build up miniature loops uh, that then I, I, can, I could draw it for you. Uh, <laughs> I could, I, I've already drawn mine. <laughs> but, uh, so no, then, and then longer loops uh, that come back and pick up other threads. It's like, and then, so that's one way that I think of it. And the other way that I think of it is like a four-dimensional uh, graph where you have the, the narrative line, you know, the arc, the, 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 the yes. thing, and then you have... Um, intimacy and distance uh, from, you know, your either very fine details that are intimate and personal or like broad sweeping statements about society. And then you have kind of intensity of delivery and quietness of delivery. 
and then they all all of those things have to be balanced against each other sort of like yeah, a web. yeah it's like an alchemist of course yeah so you could deliver something very intimately very loudly or very quietly etc cetera, etc cetera, and you could deliver it at different points along along the arc and it all sort of changes the balance of the show that's that's very that's a very elegant structure that you have there thank you i i uh, i quite enjoy that i like that i like that approach to it tell us Mine your is patented very version Mine's very similar. And you mentioned revelation. Yes. I think the revelation is the key ingredient of a good festival show. And that's the one thing that most of the shows lack. What's the theme? And comics will tell you, oh, there's no theme to the show. I'm just being funny. Well, no, that, that in itself is a theme. But there is a theme to every show. And if you don't know what that is, you're going to struggle. And you, you need that revelation there for the audience. And I, I my my structure is very very similar to that, although it's it's not an arc so much as a complete circle. Uh-huh. I drew it as a figure eight infinity symbol just because I wanted to be wanky, <laughs> but it, it is a circle. It's not entirely recursive, and I maintain that you you need your three artistic proofs. That's that's your core. The, the Greeks nailed it thousands of years ago. We haven't improved upon it since. So you've got your your ethos, your pathos, and your logos. Yeah, I was that, that. That was what the trilogy was going to be called. But I, if I got ethos, and then I realized if I wrote logos, they would think I was talking about logos. And then I thought <laughs> pathos would be too sad, so it was ethos, mythos, and chronos, because I couldn't do ethos, logos, and pathos. Sorry, carry on. I I, I didn't make the connection there with your show titles. Um, yeah. Well, there we go. Oh, that, that's love. That's isn't that lovely? Oh, I like that. Um, well, pathos doesn't necessarily mean sadness. But I thought the audience would think it was. Ah, yes, of course. The the common trap of giving the audience too much credit. <laughs> uh, but you need to have that. It's you. It's the why of your message. The why are you telling it to me, and why should I listen? Mm. You've got to have those. And the way I'll structure a show is that I will do a joke in the first five to ten minutes that will demonstrate the theme and some sort of flaw in my life right now at this moment that is causing me issue, my Aegon, if you will. If you want to throw a fourth artistic proof in there, the artistic struggle, the Mm -hmm. Aegon. And the Aegon is causing problems, and I'll do a joke about that. And then we build and build and build, do a little bit more material, and then there will be a revelation that the Aegon is causing problems. And then... That's where you that's where you have your major stumbling block. If you follow the hero's journey, that's the that's the darkest before the dawn sort of moment there. I I, I can't remember the exact examples that Campbell does, but it's it's very similar in my festival show structure. Did you so, um, read or listen to the lecture series? The which lecture series? Oh, the the hero's journey. There's a, there, oh, I'm going to send you a link. Oh, There's please, a lecture series uh, that uh, read of uh, recorded of Joseph Campbell talking about the hero's journey. Um, I've got a copy of, uh, of the hero's journey just sitting next to me. Um, <laughs> no, it's not a prop, don't worry. It just happens to be there. <laughs> so uh, about the midpoint of the show, I'll have the revelation and announce the revelation and then have everything sort of act like it's been fixed. And then there will be that fall because I didn't, re- I didn't learn my lesson yet. And the, the problem at the start is still causing problems. 
And then it's a realization that I didn't need to fix X. I needed to fix Y. And then we start to build there in the last third of the show. We build on the, it was, what was, what was a problem wasn't the problem. It was a symptom. Real problem is this. And we get there and get there and do that. And it all builds together. And then I make sure every show that I write, every show that I direct, I will make sure that I do a joke at the end that is very much the joke at the start. Yes. You need the context of the show to really appreciate it. So that last joke recontextualizes everything that you've seen in the past hour. And here's where it gets fun. You do that joke again. And the punchline references the fact that they've been sitting there for an hour watching you do this. And then you get to feel so smug and clever as everyone goes, oh, it's the joke at the start, but he had to get the end there. And it's, oh, it's all planned out and it's mapped out. And, and uh, yeah, that's that's when I climax. And that's a festival show. <laughs> well, so this is the thing that I find so uh, sort of interesting about it is that um, it is so satisfying to see a show done elegantly. It's so beautiful. And so much of, I think, satisfaction in watching a show, not just laughter, because you'll always get across the people who are like, it's just about the jokes. It's just about the jokes. And you go, yes, it is. But in an hour long festival show, it's not because you're competing with however many other people and you have to give people something more to take home with them, something memorable. Uh, and you can do that by being a character, I guess, a memorable character, or you can do that by, you know, having some idiosyncrasy or, or you can get, you can sort of do that by being very relatable. And I think that's where maybe another point where you and I cross over in that I don't think we're very relatable people <laughs> generally. Or I don't I assume. Don't you're not. I mean, I understand that the pure acidity of my personality might engender that. <laughs> well, that I, I, I guess I've always sort of been an outsider and, and, you know, brought up in a fairly idiosyncratic way. And so I don't assume that people have the same reference points as I do. So if I want someone to laugh at something that they recognize, I kind of have to do the groundwork. Yeah, that struggle I understand. So you have to give them the info. Well, I mean, it's sort of what you do with your with your history podcast is you give them the information and then you can make the joke about the information. So part of the process is, is to, without them noticing that you're world building, uh, and actually Eddie Izzard is very good at this. He knows how to build a set of references from ground zero, starting with his physicality on stage. That's yeah, one of the reasons why he, yeah, why he can do comedy in different languages because he's not necessarily pointing to cultural reference points. Even when he's making jokes about cultural reference points, he explains what they are in the process of delivering them. He's not just like toasters, am I right? And everyone knows what you mean. He assumes you don't know what he means. And I think, I assume that the audience doesn't know what I mean. I think now that I think about it, now that I've been forced to analyze it, I do approach it the same way, but from a much more antagonistic perspective. <laughs> so whereas you might approach a show with uh, you've got this ephemeral concept that people might not be familiar with, and then you you would lovingly explain that to the crowd, and then that will be your touchstone throughout the show. I might come in and go, what, you dickheads don't speak Latin? What's up with you? All right, fine. I'm going to break it down for you here <laughs> now. All right. Now, don't tell me later on that you don't get it because I've been through this. I've devoted the time, brought you up to speed. 
but it is ultimately the same process. Yeah, of you give them you give them the framework to then understand the joke without and ideally you do it in a way that is is not patronizing and is like partially invisible that it's so part of the structure that they don't notice that they have been fitted with these buttons that you can then press later. Um because that's it's sort of elegant if they don't notice that they've been that's, given that that's thing. The- struggle of the comic too was once you've once you've fitted them with all of those buttons and they're they're dancing to your tune there it's I struggle with this I know most comedians don't but I certainly struggle with watching that all come together at the end and then just not shouting out dance puppets dance (laughs) having this maniacal sort of look at you I've built you all into automatons in my own image go forth and conquer I mean, yeah, I think that might be where we depart from from one another. But I have to admit that certainly in some of the early seasons of Savage, where it was an even more brutal show, um, I was when people would cry at the end of the show. It gave me great satisfaction. Um, was Did I see it the first season? Possibly. Because we had the same room. I remember that. Yes, that was that little boardroom at the basement of the yes. hotel on Spring Street in Melbourne. It was just a absolute corporate little conference room. <laughs> Can I just uh, categorically apologise for running long every night? I, I don't know how to do an hour. I'd like to do four. That's my <laughs> ideal time frame. That is all right. I always, I, it never, it, it didn't bother me. And I think I didn't know. That, that that was not how everyone ran. And also always my shows end up at an hour and six minutes for some reason. Every time and I try and cut minutes out, it ends up back at an hour and six. I, I, mine always end up at about three hours and then I've got to sacrifice so, so much. And what's even the point, really? Yeah, just do a three-hour show. Just book I'd the room. Love to, I'd, I'd love to have that sort of celebrity pull where I could just. Hey, I did do the trilogy when I had zero celebrity pull, and that was a three-hour show. All right. Well, you know, this is going to happen now. Strap yourself. I encourage you to do it. Strap in, Dorothy, because Kansas is going bye-bye. <laughs> I think you could do a very good three-hour show. What, what um, you have to give the audience short breaks, but you can stay on stage and do some business. While they get themselves a cup of tea and do a wee. No, I'd continue to the show. If you're weak and you need to have that bathroom break, <laughs> then you can. I don't know, see why I should have to pause while the lesser bladders out there you know, get some sort of reward for their evolutionary stagnation. I mean, fair. Yep. <laughs> Only the strong will survive. Um, I guess if, if they've already paid their ticket price, you could walk them. That's the other delicious thing about being a comic as well. It's when people threaten you with never coming back. <laughs> Got your money. It's too late. You already have the money. Yeah. Yeah, although nowadays people can get their money back for being offended sometimes. Oh, gosh. Uh, we don't have time for this tangent. <laughs> well, no, we probably don't. We should vaguely start wrapping this up um, but because I've got another thing at, uh, at five. But... Um, I, I don't doubt you're uh, you're you're uh, having other things to do. I mean, your whole organizational system is terrifyingly efficient, and that's coming from someone with autism. 
<laughs> I mean, the Calendly thing that is so useful because uh, so much of my work is overseas and I cannot do time conversions with any kind of consistent um, <laughs> fidelity. That it's shut changing. down my brain watching that. That's that, that I've been outplayed. I've been completely outplayed in terms of in terms of time management, in terms of uh, breaking people down into one hour allotments. I just look, look, it was to you. such a giving- revelation to me because the friend who revealed it to me is a very efficient entrepreneurial Silicon Valley type with no kind of uh, EQ at all. And for me, it's like every time I tried to organize anything with someone overseas or anything, it'd be like eight messages or you know, two hours to figure out a time that worked for both of us. Whereas the the thing is like, this is my calendar. These are the open slots I have. You put yourself in there and we'll figure it out. I just, it, well, was, it was a revelation to me. As a flow on effect from that, now that I'm just going to direct all of my family's hate mail to you now, because that's how <laughs> I'm going to run my life. All right. You want to do Christmas, Calendly. You want to do a birthday dinner, Calendly. We're doing that now my own family's going to have to start booking in times with me. This is, this is the future. This is the light and the way I have seen it. And uh, I am impressed. Well, don't ask me what I want to do. As I said before, I don't have any internal wants. I, I'll do what I think you want me to do. So just stick it in. I, I open up my calendar the night before that. And I go, Oh, tomorrow I'm doing this. Cool. Uh, th- that's so much better than asking what, what I want to do on any given occasion. Look, this, this is the beauty of lockdown. This is the beauty of your coronavirus. It is it is breaking us free of the preconceptions that have held us back for so long. We can get rid of, destroy the old world, burn it to the ground, and build something better. I mean, if you were the, the ruler of the world in the way that you are the ruler of your audiences, what would you like to take out of coronavirus? What do you think would be optimal and what do you think is likely Human interaction would be the thing that we need to get rid of. I think we've all shown that being, <laughs> I'm not saying get rid of it entirely. I mean, obviously there are some people that like dealing with humans, you know, whatever weird fetish, that's what you do, right? Like I said, pre-show, I, uh, my ideal thing is to be a hermit and just occasionally come out and yell at people with oblique prophecies of the future. But I think what we could take away from this whole Rona situation is that we don't need to be accessible all the time. We can break that down into small palatable chunks. And I think this is, this could be the great victory for the introverts that we've been looking for, for millennia is that the world has been built by extroverts for extroverts. And suddenly there's been this, this, this sweeping changes come in. And if we don't embrace it and dictate the narrative, then we're going to go back to office hours. We're going to go back to meaningless small talk coffee chats. We're going to go back to holding infants. And none of that needs to happen. (laughs) They're going to be all on our own terms. You can dictate your level of interest in society. For some of us, like me, it's going to be 1%. Others might be more outgoing. Who knows? But let's all dictate our own societal interaction. I think that's a beautiful thing to hope for. So where can people find you online? Where can they support your podcast? 
oh gosh, don't ask that. I don't want people to find me. I want to be a reward for some leprechaun search down a rainbow. And <laughs> <laughs> no, all right. I do have to try and be mainstream in some regard. I can hear the various people that try and encourage me to be uh, a successful, <laughs> whatever I am screaming at me right now. So uh, yes, my business is smokefromhome.com. You can find uh, all of the various things I do there at smokefromhome.com, which is delightful part of work from home isn't it i do a lot of things with jacques barrett who's a contemporary of ours and my very best friend and someone you're certainly acquainted with uh i am history go time is my podcast it's wherever you get your potty action it's a very good podcast i recommend it oh thank you gosh that's delightful you've done your research too i have indeed love a history podcast and um I, I, if you see an angry man on a bus or something, that's probably me. Uh, I don't know which other ways you, you can access me. I, <laughs> like I said, I want to dictate my level of access. You search history go time. That can be the level of access that people have to me. If you can guess his calendar, you can book yourself in. Oh, yeah. All right. How do I go about this calendar? All right. You can check this in the show notes or something at the end of it. Once I establish a calendar, that will be the only point of interaction with mankind. Do a series of riddles, and if they can guess all the answers, then they're worthy of a chat. That's uh, that's how I got fired from KFC when I was a teenager, hiding equipment and putting series of riddles about where they could find it. <laughs> That's a story for another time, I think. They're allowed to have a mystery about the herbs and spices, but you're not allowed to have a mystery. Uh, I I wrote a bunch of rhyming clues about where they could find, like, the the chip salt shaker and things like that. Well, well, I think I had a lot of fun. I think that we'll have to have you back on to talk about that. Thank you so much for having tea with me. Thank you so much for having me, Alice. This has been invigorating. It's been far too long. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day. 
And when the boss he looks round the door, tie your ends up, doffers he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do, for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lally right fall doll, lally right fall day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away, is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lally right fall doll, lally right fall day.